This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. The Null Report notes safety gains. New engine STCs for Cessnas. We have an air racing roundup for you. AOPA comes to Santa Fe. And no drones in the Hurricane Florence zone. Are you ready to do some hangar talk, Jill? Let's do it, Dave. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Hi, and welcome to Hangar Talk. This is David Tulis, and sitting in with me is Jill Tallman while Ian Twombly is on special assignment. Welcome, Jill. Thank you, Dave. Happy to be here. Glad to be here with you. Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, NAL report that we teased at the top of the show. And there's some uh, some really good safety gains here that sound like they're going to be pretty good for us in the GA world. The fatal accident rate fell below one fatal event per 100,000 hours. And now that's significant. You know why? Why? Because we're flying more and having less fatal accidents. Which is a good point, Dave, uh, because a lot of times when we talk about accident statistics, um, pilots think that we're having fewer accidents because we're not flying as much because of the cost of avcast. But that's these figures show that that's just not true. That's right. That's right. Now, we do need to note that these figures are from the year 2014. 14, I think. Let me double check that. Because it takes a couple of years to get all those accident statistics in. The NTSB has to gather all that data, and there's a lot of number crunching going in. So, so that's the most recent year we have, but it does show that we're flying a heck of a lot more, and we're having less fatals. So wh- why do you think that is? Do you think that we're, we have better safety equipment or better training or both? It's probably a combination of those things. But you know, one thing that the report shows is that pilots are still having fuel mishaps. How could that be possible? Don't ask me. Well, I shouldn't say that. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, in a Cessna, you don't typically have to change left-right tanks, but in a low-wing, you sure do. And you've got a Cherokee, you've got a, a low-wing, you know, 140. And, and how, how do you manage your fuel? I keep track of how often I change tanks, and I use my watch um, more than anything else. Well, that's a pretty easy way to do it. But you're right. We still need to, to get that 
nipped in the bud, so to speak. Um, and a lot of the new digital technology that's out right now, even uh, we have portable EFBs and things like that, they'll, they'll shoot a reminder out to you to change tanks, that kind of thing. And a lot of the new aircraft actually have digital gauges, which look to be a lot more reliable. I like digital gauges. They're easy to read. That's right. Any more, uh, any more fuel tips here before we move on to our next topic? Um, my, one of my tips is always buy fuel whenever you can. So you can never have too much fuel or too much runway. That's for sure. Yeah, my instructors used to tell me that all the time. Well, we're glad to see that some there's some safety gains, important safety gains for that NAW report. And that is something that um, AOPA is really big on, and we do publicize that. It's available for you guys. Look at uh, AOPA.org, and you'll see the uh, NAW report there just in the search bar. Give it a look. Let's go from that to something that you know a lot more about than I do, which is the Airplanes STC. This is an engine STC for uh, for a lot of popular Cessnas. That's right. Uh, this Airplanes is a great company in Kansas, and they have a huge number of STCs for various makes and models of engines, and they have just come out with uh, STC options for the Cessna 182, the Cessna 182RG, and the Cessna 172R. Now, now the 172R is that now was that our uh, new Cessna, new like new Cessna that we gave away the red one and the silver one that you flew for like what a year and a half? That's correct. Um, it, it actually we that was a Cessna 172N. N N. Okay. Right. But the airplanes STC is really nice. Uh, we like you mentioned, Dave. We had it on the sweepstakes 172. It boosted that 160 horsepower engine to 180 horsepower, and that extra 20 horsepower makes a lot of difference. You wouldn't think so, but it does. Well, it makes a lot of difference. Now, we're here on the East Coast, but it makes a lot of difference, especially to folks well, in a hot and uh, humid environment, you know, in a hot day, or a high elevation environment. You know, lots of folks uh, are using those 172s and 182s as well out in the uh, in the West, and, and you know, you want to get up and go over those mountains. That's a key thing. More power is a good thing, and if you have the money, I'd say go for it. Well, that's pretty cool stuff. So it's air planes, P-L-A-I-N-S, and uh, look for that STC if you've got those uh, those 182 and 172 models. Well, we're moving up in engine horsepower. We might as well talk a little bit about about some air racing. Uh, Jill, have you ever been to an air race before? I have not. How about you? I've been to a lot of NASCAR races, <laughs> but I haven't seen many air races. But I would like to let our podcast listeners know that U.S. pilot Michael Goulian, who was at the top of the leaderboard for six of the Red Bull, well, five of the Red Bull air race races, stumbled a little bit and dropped down to third overall in the race that was won by Martin Zonka of the Czech Republic. And uh, it was in Austria. It was actually not too far from Vienna, near the Alps. And, uh, and Zonka claimed first it was his third win in a row, which is pretty cool. Three in a row. Look at him go. Yeah, there he goes, like the hat trick. But, of course, Michael Gullion is one of our uh, ambassadors, an AOPA ambassador. And, uh, and basically he, he had some issues in, in one of the heat races leading up to that. 
So uh, we're hoping that Goulian can reconnect and uh, do a little bit better. The next two races are on U.S. soil, by the way. Uh, one at Indianapolis, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast, and another one at Fort Worth, Texas. But now, uh, one thing that's making the rounds right now, Jill, I don't know if you got a chance to see it yet, was the Reno air races where two jets basically clipped wings. Have You, you hadn't seen that yet, have I you? I have not, but that just sounds very scary. Yeah, this is at the Reno, is at the National Championship air races in Reno, and basically it was two L-39 albatrosses. Now, those are pretty sweet looking jet aircraft now i'm not trying to put you on the spot have you flown one of those no how about you yes i have oh what was that like it was awesome okay and actually you can uh you can actually take some training in one in an elter and i think Alyssa cobb took some training a number of years ago in one of those that's correct and um now these are really cool jets they're also from uh i guess from the czech group i want to say they're from czechoslovakia i know they're from somewhere out in the eastern block and they're trainer jets but these are every bit as maneuverable you know as other fighter jets really and so what happened at this race um going around one of the pylons to the Jets, basically, the, in the NASCAR terms, you'd say they were swapping some paint. Uh, it gets a little bit more serious in aircraft terms when you're going 430 miles an hour or so. But both pilots were able to fly away and land safely. You want to tell people right off the bat that, that, that there was no big drama with that. Yeah, no burying the lead here, Dave. Right, right. But honestly, goodness, that had to be one of the scariest things that people could see at a race like that. Have you seen anything like that? Have you experienced any 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 kind of drama like that? Well, I just remember a few years ago, there was a terrible accident at, at Reno uh, with the, one of the P-51 pilots, and um, unfortunately, that did not have a good outcome. Uh, there was a there was a fatality, at least one fatality, and, and some injuries among the audience. But it doesn't sound like this one was that bad. Right. It was not. We're uh, glad that it wasn't. In uh, Jet Heat 2B on Friday morning, Nathan Harnigal of Texas, he was flying Reality Check, appeared to be overtaking Alexandre Ekman of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, uh, pilot in race 37 when their wingtips collided. Now, the video shows pieces of airplanes falling off. Now, I hate to see that. And one of the pilots immediately uh, climbed high to get out of the, the, basically out of the race, the race track, if you would. And then Ekman's jack, basically it looks like it lost part of his right wing and certainly had visible damage to its stabilizer and elevator as well. But both pilots landed safely, and uh, it was just a dramatic collision. But wh- why don't we go in and say uh, who won some of the other, other events? Uh, looks like Mike Steiger won that jet gold race flying Albatross uh, called American Spirit. And Andrew Finley of Idaho won the sport gold race flying a Lancer Super Legacy. In other classes, the Formula One was won by Justin Meters of Fort Worth, Texas. In uh, Snowshoe SR1, what, I wonder what that is. The biplane of Andrew Buehler of Washington State uh, won the biplane class. And the T6 class was won by John Lomar of Dallas flying an SNJ called Radial Velocity. And congratulations to all those pilots. They are way better than I. I'm on the other end of that spectrum. I'm yep, more like here. low and slow. <laughs> Cessna Perhaps won. we should set up a Reno, <laughs> a Reno race for the low and slow crowd. Well, we could do a as low and slow as you can go race. Yeah. Well, you know, there's already the stall races that are kind of 
like that and trying yeah, to Yeah, but land. you have to be really good at that, too. <laughs> yeah, you do. There needs to be an event for those of us who are somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I totally agree with you. That's pretty That's pretty cool. Well, maybe we can come up with that and uh, and toss that to the Racing Association. And they'll, there you go. They'll be all-inclusive for us and other podcast listeners that are, that are <laughs> like us. So let's go from that to uh, to something else that you do know a little bit about. I know you weren't at the New Mexico fly-in that we just had, the AOPA fly-in. It kind of kicks off the fall flying season, if you will. But it was a very popular event in the land of enchantment, as Michael uh, Collins says on his awesome article with great photos of my dad. And um, we had like 40 static aircraft on display. We had our normal uh, safety seminars and learning seminars. Uh, People could learn about uh, spin training with Catherine Cavagnero. Adrian Eichhorn was there and uh, just, you know, for maintenance. And one of the cool things was Ted Malone, the 5,000th pilot to get back in the air on the Rusty Pilot Program. And kudos to him we're doing that. Um, now, I will say that I was a rusty pilot also mm-hmm. before I came up here to AOPA. And that program is really cool. And just a, a quick throw out for the rusty pilot program. It's now available online. So look for that, folks, if you're an AOPA member. Yeah, please do. In fact, I had an email just this morning, David, from um, a 71-year-old rusty pilot who got back in the air just this past May. That's awesome. After 12 years. I love it. You know, and that's a, that's a cool thing. And listen, when I see people um, at these fly-ins and on other assignments and they tell me they haven't flown in a while, I say, you know what? You're still a pilot. You are still a pilot. You did it. And uh, you just need to go to one of those rusty pilot programs and get that ground school in. You know, fly a little bit with an instructor in the aircraft and you're back in business. But that leads us to the next couple of fly-ins and let's talk a little bit about Carbondale, which is, that's October 5th and 6th, right? That's right. Carbondale, Illinois. Um, I went out to Carbondale to do the advance uh, writing for the insert that we publish about each of the fly-ins. And I think this is going to be a really nice fall get-together, Dave. Yeah. Carbondale is a, is known as a party school at Southern <laughs> Illinois University. Do you do a lot of partying while you're out there? No, not at all. But we did eat a lot of barbecue because there is a fantastic barbecue restaurant in town. Cool deal. Cool deal. I don't know the name of it, but, uh, but I tell you what, if it's barbecue... I'm going to jump all over that if I can uh, possibly give it a whirl. But I know that we're going to have our same cool seminars. Uh, we're going to have a f- couple of flyouts there. Now, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, Jill, but do you recall where the flyouts are going to be? One is going to be to Scott Air Force Base. Cool. And uh, what are we going to do at Scott Air Force Base? We're going to see all kinds of cool airplanes. We are going to see military uh, canine teams. And we are going to see aircraft that are uh, used, utilized. Uh, Scott is a huge transportation hub. And a lot of, they utilize a, a lot of aircraft and medical transport. Okay. Well, I like that. And now there's more than one fly on these. I must say that I have uh, been on one of these flyouts before when we were out in Camarillo, California. And that's where I met Mike Jesh with the Cessna Pilots Association. We went to Catalina Island and we did an overnight trip. It was so cool. Right. I would just, I would, I would recommend that anyone that goes to our fly-ins where there is a fly out to participate in that because there's a lot of camaraderie. 
and you're just going to have a great time. Absolutely. It just adds so much to your weekend. It does. It does. And you learn a thing or two also, I must say. Well, let's go from that fly-in at Carbondale, Illinois, to the last fly-in of the year, which is going to be closer to where I'm from, Gulf Shores, Alabama. And that's going to be October 26th and 27th, right before Halloween. And that's not too far from Pensacola. So there's uh, the Pensacola base right there where, where it's a Navy base. And um, and you can see the Blue Angels, I mm. believe. They, and they practice routinely over there. And so that's going to be at the end of October. So if you haven't made plans yet for uh, Carbondale or Pensacola, there's still some time. And we still have details available. That's right. AOPA.org. And just look in the, on the News tab or the Community tab, and you'll find all that information. Now, before we leave the South, we need to talk about something that's pretty heavy duty that just kind of hit the South, and that's uh, Hurricane Florence. And we're uh, right now people are in cleanup mode and recovery mode, but this was a pretty devastating hurricane, and uh, it affected a lot of people. Now, your son went to school down there on the Georgia coast. He did. He went to college in Savannah. And now Savannah was spared uh, pretty much, although at one time Georgia was in the in the eye of the storm, so to speak, as it was bearing down. Now, But it, uh, Hurricane Florence hit the coast as a Category 1, but it still brought just a ton of of rain uh, up and down the eastern seaboard and a lot of flooding and people are still cleaning up from that. W- one thing to note about uh, hurricanes, usually in the aftermath, that is where GA typically shines uh, with some of these relief operations. Um, Jill, have you participated in any of the GA relief operations? No, but I have colleagues here at AOPA and some friends who have, and it seems like it is a wonderful, worthwhile thing to do. It is. It is. I actually did participate in in uh, last year's devastating hurricanes down in Florida in Irma. You must be one of the colleagues. That must be. <laughs> and here we are right across the room from each other at <laughs> the podcast. Well, our podcast listeners know we've actually chatted about that a little bit. But, you know, that is where GA shines. And down there, we actually had, um, you know, we did some airdrop operations. We brought relief supplies, we brought chainsaws to folks, and a lot of times the roads are flooded. So your airports are where uh, a lot of the military people are, and a lot of the recovery operations are centered at GA airports. Right. Another another key thing for that. But now let's talk a little bit about some of the, um, the activities that you're not supposed to do in one of these uh, cleanup efforts, and that's fly drones during an emergency like that. That's correct. Uh, The FAA was not kidding around. They said they were talking about $10,000 fines for people who would be who are flying drones that were interfering with rescue operations. And and those rescue operations included U.S. Coast Guard helicopter crews rescuing at least 50, 60 people. Mm -hmm. And this was from rooftops and out of flooded areas like that, where these are folks in dire straits. So uh, we don't want to impede upon that. All all you uh, drone pilots that are listening, please make sure you look at TFRs and stay out of the way whenever there's a natural disaster like that, which also leads me to mention 
from my news background, I can tell you that whenever there's a big natural disaster like this, Jill, you'll typically see politicians come and make an appearance. That's true. And uh, President Trump did go down to Florence to see the extent of the hurricane damage. That's right. And that definitely brings TFRs that go up to 18,000 feet. Right. And so that means no one's doing anything during those time periods. And you'd have to be ultra careful. Another thing that typically happens, obviously, is that you could have uh, aircraft that are damaged or you could perhaps fly your airplane out of that area ahead of the storm. Right. So um, this is a good segue for us to lead to our special guest, which is Pat Brown, uh, AOPA ambassador in the great state of Texas, who unfortunately experienced Hurricane Harvey last year. And his aircraft, um, it sustained some damage because there was a lot of flooding there after Harvey. But Pat is also a, an excellent glider pilot, tow plane pilot, and knows how to fly on the cheap. So we're going to hear a little bit from Pat Brown. We're going to welcome to Hangar Talk Pat Brown, the AOPA ambassador for the great state of Texas. Yeah. And <laughs> Pat's up here attending an ambassador event, but uh, we have him on the air today at Hangar Talk because he's got over 9,000 hours. He's a glider pilot, a tow plane pilot, a gold seal instructor. Welcome to Hangar Talk, Pat. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in aviation. Oh, man, I've been in love with airplanes for as long as I can remember. I, I kind of came of age. Let me rephrase that. I was very young during the Mercury Project. And, <laughs> yeah. But but I do remember uh, Alan Shepard and John Glenn and the suborbital flights and all that kind of stuff and being fascinated with the space program. And um, even to the point of, you know, buying little, uh, my mother would buy me these little plastic airplanes and I'd put a string on the wing and, you know, whip it around my head. And I figured, because, you know, it would always kind of do backflips because it's not very stable. Oh, right. I, I actually sure. figured that I could, if I put a, a little stone or something or underneath to balance it, it, to balance yeah. it, little, it would always, it would fly right, right? So... Uh, but it was about, I was I guess I was about 13 years old uh -huh. before I got my first airplane ride in a 707 going uh -huh. from Birmingham, Alabama to Atlanta, connecting to Detroit, Michigan. And I was hooked. And that, uh, as soon as I could start working and, and making some money and putting some money aside, um, I, I, I did and, and uh, started flying at age 16 and got my ticket shortly after my 17th birthday. And the rest is history, as they say. So you're one of those uh, few folks who have got really got their uh, probably got their aviation certificate before you got your driver's license, or shortly thereafter. It was it was nearly it nearly yeah. Yeah, I bet you were a hot dog on campus then. <laughs> well, you know, I played guitar and played you know, bass, and I played in a band, and I flew an airplane, and so dates weren't hard to get. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. I play, I play bass. we got to get the band back together. I'll tell you what. <laughs> well, that's cool stuff. So so pretty much like a lot of folks, you spent a lot of time at the airport, I'm guessing, when oh, you were yeah. younger. Oh, and yeah. And you saved up a lot of money, and you have multiple credentials uh, under your belt. you got you know single-engine land, multi-engine land. Uh, how high up do your credentials go? Do you have ATP? No, I don't have an ATP. I stopped. I stopped at commercial. You know, I never had the desire to be a corporate pilot gotcha. or, 
or an airline pilot. Well, I should say, at, you know, at age 16, I thought, oh, well, that'd be cool to fly airlines. But at the time, you had to have 20-20 uncorrected vision. Oh, right. And I've been wearing glasses since I was 13. I so, so the military wasn't an option. Commercial aviation, in, in the terms of airlines, that wasn't an option. So uh, it was like, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to have it do it the old-fashioned way, one hour at a time. So That's you, well, you what know, I did. Yeah, it works. One hour at a time. So speaking of one hour at a time, now you got 9,000 of those hours. Yeah. And a ton of those hours were as a either as a tow plane pilot yeah. or glider pilot. Tell yeah. me about tell me about tow plane in first. Well, I've got about 2300 toes under my belt. Um, that's you know, that's not that many. I've got friends that have 5 and 6000, but um, 2300 was a was was a good number. Um, and so how do you do it? You're you're starting to tell me a little bit uh, before the podcast that what what it's like when you're towing an airplane. <laughs> what when you know the dynamics that it's kind of like being on a ski rope, I guess, when you're skiing. Well, it is. If you're the tow pilot, you have to realize that the glider has more control over your pitch attitude than huh. you do. Right. So if he or she gets too high on tow, he's going to force your nose down, and likewise, too low on tow, force your nose up. Gotcha. And depending on how high you are above the ground, either one of those can be very bad. So uh, I joke about having nerves of steel, but but uh, there is a, there is a little pucker factor there when things get exciting. Student pilots uh, they'll get out of position uh, with great regularity. Yeah. Uh, slack rope or or way too far to the right, too far to the left. They'll they they'll pull you to the right or to well, the left. Well, because they are students, they're still learning. That's exactly right. And so if you've got a good instructor that can kind of get them back in the right position, that's fine. An experienced tow pilot with, uh, excuse me, an experienced glider pilot, you won't even know they're back there. How about that? Yeah. Because they they work in symmetry with you. Very much so. And they probably anticipate. Well, very much so. I mean, if, if you're flying through a thermal, for example, from the glider perspective, now I'm looking at it now as, as, a, as a glider pilot or instructor from the glider perspective, if a tow plane flies through some, uh, say, some lift, a thermal, yeah. you'll actually see the, the tow plane rise in front of you. Well, you know within about three seconds you're going to be there. It's your turn. And so, okay, we'll be prepared for that. And likewise, if he's flying through some sink, he's going to go a little bit below you. So, okay, well, let's anticipate that so we minimize the chance of a slack rope, for example. So there's a, a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. So a slack rope, what's that gonna? What's any force is gonna have an equal and opposite reaction? So what does a slack rope do to the to the first the tow pilot and also to then to the glider pilot? Well, the slack rope as a as a tow pilot, you'll feel a little bit of an acceleration. You really will feel a little bit of an acceleration. The glider pilot can well at some point at some point that rope is going to go taut. Right. So there's not much that the tow pilot can do about okay. that. You don't want to be jacking with the throttle too gotcha. much. But the glider pilot, on the other hand, can. There's a number of techniques he can introduce a little bit of yaw into the airplane. Uh, maybe under certain circumstances, add a little bit of speed brake or something like that. I gotcha. To tighten uh, it up. Yeah, yeah. There's ways to do it without snapping the rope. Uh, you don't, certainly don't want to. That's bad form. Of course, <laughs> of course. Well, now, as a glider pilot, obviously you've got you know a ton of time as a glider pilot. You work with the Greater Houston Soaring Association. Yeah, shout like. out to the Greater Houston Soaring Association, uh, HoustonSoaring.org. Uh, uh, cool. Paid political announcement there. Good shout out. Uh, there, it's a great group of folks. Uh, the club has been in uh, operation, I don't know, 
40 years perhaps. A uh, couple of tow planes, uh, half a dozen uh, gliders, L-13s, L-23s, uh, a Grobe, a, a couple Neat. of others. Uh, this is a good group of folks down in the south part of town. What's it like flying uh, a glider? I've all, I've <laughs> got a half I've got a half an hour in one, so <laughs> really? I'm not really qualified to well, comment. <laughs> well, you know, your your first impression is going to be about right. You know, it's a it was quiet. It's very quiet. I mean, it's uh, it's a hoot. You know, the first time you pull that rope and you break off from the tow plane and, and you're really up there by yourself and no visible means of support, so mm-hmm. to, uh, so to speak. It's quite a hoot. It's quiet. It's quiet, but you can, you know, you can sense thermals when you yeah. fly through a thermal. You'll feel like somebody kind of puts their hand on your bottom and kind of pushes up a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, you can also, you can also gauge that by the difference in the sound of the wind uh, coming through the glass in the cockpit. You know, you'll, if you if you're going along and you're getting kind of a shh, kind of a sound, if yeah. it goes shh, oh, you can hear it. You, you can actually, change. you can actually feel it. You'll feel, you'll, you'll. you'll and you'll sense it a little bit too. Of course, there you have instrumentation in the cockpit, a variometer, sure. uh, which is kind of like a like a um, vertical speed indicator, gotcha. except it measures uh, it re- measures knots per hour instead of feet per minute. Oh, how cool! Um, but essentially, it works in layman's terms. It works the same as an air, as a vertical speed indicator. So you've got that, but you can also feel it too. That's neat. That's neat stuff. I did a little assignment uh, over in California, the Flying Willets. It's a family of sailplane pilots, uh, uh-huh. and it was really neat. And uh, we uh, we had some good sailplane weather and a lot of thermals out there in California. Yeah. But now I, w- I wouldn't think of it too much in, in, in Texas, but I guess there's plenty there. Well, it's 100 degrees outside. You're going to get some thermals. That uh, makes sense. No, actually, uh, actually, Texas has got some really good soaring weather. We don't get much at where we are in the flatlands. We don't get anything in terms of ridge lift or anything like that. And we certainly don't have any wave flying. Yeah. But we get a lot of thermal lift. So depending on, I mean, I've, I've been up as high as, on a good day, 8,000 feet. That's great. That's cool. So, so one thing about glider uh, flying is that it's a little bit less expensive than in a powered flight. So that's going to segue me to ask you a little bit about how to get some uh, younger folks involved in aviation right. or, or folks who are just re-entering aviation, to, you know, economically. And what are, give me some tips with that. And is, first of all, is sailplane flying one of those tips? Well, yeah, I mean, there there are a number of ways when we do our Rusty Pilot Seminars. One of the things that I talk about towards the tail end is that, uh, and depending on where I am in the state of Texas when I'm doing these things, is there's usually a glider club or uh-huh. a glider operation within an hour or two, maybe three, depending on where we are. But um, uh, that's certainly one way to do it. I, I don't. Um, I don't remember exactly what our, our hourly rates are for a glider, but I, last I remember it was about eighteen dollars an hour for that's, a glider. That's nothing compared to one hundred and fifty bucks an hour in a in a you know one seventy two or something. No, like that. No, that's exactly right. So you know you might pay thirty dollars for a tow to two or three thousand feet, but once you're off tow, especially if it's a good booming day, yeah, you can stay up for hours and Just, literally hours. That's a really good tip on how to how to get into aviation. You know, a little bit less a little bit less outlay and still learn the basic skills that you need if you if you learn to fly gliders your transition to power will be much much quicker um, if you're a power pilot and you transition into gliders um, you're going to have trouble with three things you're going to have trouble on tow huh? trouble is probably an overstatement you're going to have three challenges you gotcha you're, you're going to have you're going to have a challenge on tow because that's like you're flying formation yeah 
Um, you're going to have a little bit of an issue uh, maintaining airspeed early on because there's not really much of a cowling out in front of you to kind of gauge that sight picture from the horizon to the top of the cowling. Right, it's short. Yeah, and then you're gonna, and then you're gonna. What the hell are the rudders for? Uh huh. Uh-huh. You know, with the 50 foot wingspan, you have uh-huh. a lot of adverse yaw. Okay. And so power pilots, who some of them are used to just flying with their feet on the floor, they're not gonna do that. Now they think that the rudder pedals are just footrests, you know, <laughs> and that doesn't work. Uh, that doesn't work in a glider. You have to. Uh, you actually have to. If if you're flying a glider properly, and again, this is these are some very broad statements. Sure. They're, they're not necessarily true across the board. But if you're flying a glider properly, you're actually going to lead the turn a little bit with the rudder. Okay. And when you're going to level out, you're actually going to lead the leveling out process a little bit with the aileron. How about that? So, and those are just things that, that they're, those are technique items. And yeah. again, I'm painting with a very broad brush. Yeah, but that's a, that's good to know. And it's a good a good thing to think about. And the differences between power flying and yeah. glider flying, and the takeaway that you just made was that it's quite a bit less expensive. It's much less that. expensive. All right. So now if we're back in a powered uh, airplane, mm-hmm. uh, what are some other cool inexpensive ways to get involved. We started to talk about flying clubs a minute right. ago. I know you know a lot of them. In fact, the Nate Abel flying clubs out there in Texas. Yep. Yep. Uh, so uh, what? give me a quick rundown on a, on a flying club option for people who want to save some money. Well, you know, there, there are a couple of different things that you could do. I suppose one would be to find an, a flying club that's already in existence, for uh-huh. example. Um, these may be equity clubs where all the owners have an equal stake in the airplane or a non-equity club where the owners, uh, excuse me, the club members don't actually own the airplane. They simply uh, fly an airplane that's leased from a, from an owner. But in any case, if you can imagine, and I'll just take a $100,000 airplane, for example, if you can imagine going out and having to write a check for $100,000, you, David Toulis. I could not. Yeah, and, and even <laughs> financing $100,000. I mean, that's like buying a house. It's tough. Right. So, right. Um, and, and, you might, and you might be able to finance it over 20 years, but still, it's, it's, that's a big outlay and a big nut that you've got to cover sure. every single month. Now imagine that you, had a, you blew a jug or something like that, uh-huh. and now you've got a $20,000 engine repair exactly. and that's conservative sure uh or or uh, uh you or or you have to have a parachute repacked on the cirrus which is ten to fifteen thousand dollars or just or just an out of ordinary annual any any of those grand. Uh, absolutely right. absolutely now you got to pay for that by yourself right now figure that same airplane with 10 members okay. you know coming up with 10 grand a piece is uh, and again, I'm not I'm not minimizing the fact that that uh, ten thousand dollars isn't a significant amount of money. Sure it is, but it's but a lot it's, less. It's a lot less than hundred thousand. Right, right. So ten thousand dollars times ten people is a hundred thousand dollars, and now that six thousand dollar annual is. I don't. I can't do the arithmetic. Six hundred. Six hundred bucks. <laughs> and the other thing is that usually with a flying club like that, not everyone is flying an equivalent amount of time. A lot of folks will join and they they won't fly that much, so yeah. it leaves more time for the rest of us. Well, you're absolutely right. In fact, there are a couple of clubs in the Houston area, and I have a good relationship with both of them, and we talk oftentimes about the usage of their airplanes. Uh, both clubs have in the neighbor, neighborhood of 150 members, uh-huh. uh, with six or seven airplanes each. And but what they find is probably 30 percent of their members do 80 percent of the flying. There you go. And uh, that's a good average. Yeah. Something along. I mean, that 80 20 rule kind of does work out. And uh, and when I'm doing safety, uh, safety, when I'm doing uh, uh, flying club seminars, one of the questions that comes up to me is, well, you know, how many people per airplane? 
And I think our own statistics are somewhere between 8 and 12. And okay. that's kind of the number that I typically uh, quote. And the response is, whoa, that's an awful lot of people for, for one airplane. Yeah. But if you stop and think about it when you were a kid and you got a Christmas toy, uh -huh. and what did you do with that Christmas toy? You played with it every day, all day, for hours on end, and eventually it kind of ended up back in the closet, and uh -huh. you bring it out every now and then. Right. Same thing happens in a flying club, if, especially if you, get a, if you have 10 people, and all of a sudden you get an airplane, all 10 people want to fly the airplane at the same time. Of course. Well, at, over a period of time, whether it's a, you know, two months, six months, a year, whatever the case may be, and it, it, it will it will tail off to a more normal usage. Okay. And most most clubs will find out that eight to twelve people works just just fine. In fact, I was talking to one of my colleagues, Jamie Beckett, down in Florida huh? recently, and and he was telling me of a Cessna 150 club that he's aware of that has I think he said 23 members. That's big. That's big with one airplane. Uh huh. And apparently with no issues. That's so, pretty cool. That's good enough. When with online scheduling these days, yeah. it makes it a lot easier. Lots of choices. Uh, yeah, and, and that's that's a cool way to go. I'm a member of uh, the Westminster Aerobats Club here, ah, so we yes. have, we have a Cessna 152, <laughs> an aerobatic Cessna 152. That's right. That's right. So I'm hoping to get a little aerobatic time in it, but uh, <laughs> but it's a good way to. Uh, have some camaraderie with yeah. other folks that are very interested and a great way to just get caught up in aviation and, and have, you really have some social time too. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's another thing. It's just a great idea to socialize with folks that way. You're a lot a lot more likely and I don't I don't know what the actual stat is, but you're a lot more likely to finish a rating or a certificate if you're with a with a flying club. That's cool. You have the support of all the people in the flying club that are encouraging you to keep going. There are people that you can go to if you get stuck at a plateau uh -huh. and get a little bit of an encouragement. You know, come on, you can do this. That's a you great idea. Do this. So oh, I like that. So that social aspect in that uh, and and even from a po in a in a positive way, a little bit of peer pressure, yeah. You know, just in a but in a positive way, positive right. reinforcement. That's, so it really does work. That, I like it. Well, look, I, your time's short today, but I, <laughs> I don't want us to leave without addressing something uh, that that you experienced and, and lived through. Uh, Hurricane Harvey. We're All on right. the tail. We're on the tail end of Hurricane Florence here. Yeah. That affects a lot of people on the East Coast. And I know that you had a, a aircraft that was uh, hangered during yeah. that that activity. Tell us a little bit about how uh, folks could prepare for a hurricane. You know, aviation owners that uh, airplane owners that can prepare. Also, what you had to do on the back end of that. All right. Well, first of all, you check your insurance policy because a lot of insurance policies are written so that if there's some sort of a storm coming your way, the insurance company will actually pay for you to relocate your airplane. You can move it elsewhere. Yeah, and and they'll pay for that, whatever that might end up being. We didn't have the the luxury of of doing that because things just happen uh, rather quickly Very. and uh and of course the we weren't prepared for this thing just to come onshore, go offshore, and then come back on as a tropical depression and just stay there. It hung out in the Houston area for days, and there was a lot yeah. of flooding. It yeah. was really a bad situation, which we just experienced here and still are on the East Coast. Yep. Yeah, in fact, it was raining like crazy when we came in here on Monday for this series of meetings. So gotcha. we, were, we even got a tail end of it up here. But uh, So move your airplane. If you can. Uh, if you can, move the airplane. Check your insurance policy because some insurance policies actually will say that it has to be a named storm okay. before you can get coverage on your flood, uh, the flood portion of your policy or the damage part That's of your policy. Key. 
But we ended up with, uh, oh, I want to say 18 or 20 inches of water in the hangar. And, and this was, uh, I have a partnership in a Cirrus and in a Comanche. Mm-hmm. The Cirrus was on high ground in a different part of the airport. The Comanche is the one that got damaged. But we ended up with water uh, up over the wing root and over the flaps. Wow, that's significant. It is. And and it, it, if you know enough about Comanches, as I know you do, um, the tail sits rather low. It is. So the tail was almost up to the horizontal sta- stabilizer was in the water, which meant the uh, pulleys and, and cables. and oh, some, they're not normally exposed to water. And no, you can go no. through rain, that's different. This is soaking in it. Uh, this is soaking in it for right. days and nasty stuff, too. Right. So so we ended, and, uh, we ended up with the uh, a couple of autopilot servos had to be replaced. All the cabling, all the pulleys, uh, the uh, flap motor, the gear motor. Um, all of the landing gear uh, components. Oh, the uh, actuators the, and everything else. All sure. that stuff. Yeah, uh, fact, it was underwater. Yeah, in fact, when we flew it to the under under ferry permit, because during the, the hurricane it actually went out annual too. So uh, when we flew it under ferry permit up to the place where we had the work done, we obviously left the flaps up and the gear down. To, because you can only operate it. We didn't want to operate it and have it not work. We didn't Keep know. Down, That's which right. Which is another key safety item to, yeah. for people to think about. If you ever have any kind of electrical issue or high Hydraulics, depending on how things are operated, just leave them out. Leave it out. Right. And, you know, no harm, no foul. It was a little bit of a slow trip up, but we made it just fine. When they took those motors out, there was actually water coming out of the motors. Dripping so it was, out of it. Yeah, so it was it was a bad deal. So, you know, that ended up being a uh, about a $25,000 repair job Man. right there on a, on a 1969 uh, 260C model of Comanche. Which is significant. But yeah. and, the, and the key takeaway is that some of that damage, or well, a lot of that damage, was, was uh, in places that you would normally not inspect. Yeah. It was hidden. Yeah. Now, you knew it because you could come and eyeball and go, hey, there's two feet of yeah. water. i got to do something. The other and thing that you need to do, too, is if, if you're going to uh, if you're going to relocate the airplane, well let's, well, let's just say that it wasn't even as bad as, as, as we had, but uh-huh. let's say that the landing gear was submerged. Okay. okay. The wheels were submerged. Which is common. You don't want to fly that thing without repacking the bearings. Oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. So, I was thinking, thinking brakes, man. Well, that too, but but the bearings would be all jammed up. Yeah, that's so. a real good point because you don't want to land and then say one of them seizes up. Yeah, we had uh, we had all three wheel uh, wheels and and, uh, and and we had the brakes redone and we had the wheels uh, bearings repacked before we flew it to Clifton for the work. Um, I had a uh, in fact I had a uh, a student call me um, a few days after the floodwater subsided and asked me to fly his cardinal uh-huh. to an off-airport site to have some work done. And he said, yeah, it's all ready to go. So, okay, well, I should have asked. You're right. The bearings is but, not something I would that would come to my mind, but it sure yeah. will be at the forefront now. Yep. And I should have asked him, did you have the real bearings repacked? And, but it turns out he didn't, which really kind of explained why the wheels didn't turn too well when I landed. <laughs> on the, you know, yeah, smoked the wheels a little bit, tires a little bit when I landed on the other airport to have the work done. But... Uh, and and a lot of squeaking during taxi. Yeah, <laughs> I know there are a lot of other tips that you can give us about that. I know, but the, uh, your time is kind of tight here. I should explain to our podcast listeners that Pat's in town for a series of meetings. Yeah, and yeah. we're lucky to have him here uh, now. On a personal front, your home got severely damaged. You had, I think you had just moved into it or just remodeled it. Well, no, we we just bought it. We okay. hadn't even moved into it okay. yet. So we ended up with. Uh, I, oh, but, uh, the only thing that I had moved into the house was some memorabilia from a previous uh, career. I was in the music business for a long time, and mm-hmm. I had a bunch of memorabilia that I'd moved into the house, getting ready to hang on walls and things like that, including about $25,000 worth of guitars. Oh, man. And uh, they were in the house during during the, the other house that we hadn't moved into. They were in that house. Oh. And uh, and so I was, I was on pins and needles for four days. I'll bet. 
But uh, the neighbors in the neighborhood, we stayed in touch, and, and the house did not flood. So um, uh, we, after the flood, after excuse me, after the after the hurricane passed, we were able to get at least to the neighborhood where the house was. We yeah. still had to wade through waist deep water to get to the house. Yeah, no water inside the house. Thank goodness. But I put all this memorabilia up now because I didn't know what was coming. Mm-hmm. And the next day, the Army Corps of Engineers opened the floodgates in a, in a ba- basically a big retention pond uh-huh. on the west side of town, and that flooded our neighborhood with about two feet of water. That's so, unreal. Yeah, so for, fortunately, the guitars and all the memorabilia was up, and that did not get damaged. But then it messed up your walls and the inner structure oh, yeah. of the house. So that's a, that was a real disappointment. I know you worked through that for months. You're still working through that. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, in and that fact, was last it, summer. Yeah, it's uh, it's been over a year, and we are just now hanging dry, drywall and painting. Wow. So. The one good thing about it, I guess, if there's a good thing about it, when we when we when we bought the house, uh, my wife li- loved it. It's, it had just been remodeled, and she loved it. And it was on a scale of one to ten. It was a ten, uh-huh. except the kitchen. Uh-huh. The kitchen was about an eight. Oh, okay. And when we walked in there, the very first time we looked at it, she says, "I love the kitchen. I love the house." She said, "But." Kitchen's got to go. We're going to have to remodel the kitchen. Well, we had just remodeled the kitchen a, a year before in another house. Uh-huh. And I said, no, sweetheart, no. Can we just wait for a little while? Right. And she said, so I guess I could live with it for a couple of years. Well, you know, two weeks later, after two weeks after we bought the house, it flooded. And we walked in, and, of course, the hardwood floors are all buckled, and the, the, everything is a mess. And she looked at it, and she went... And she claps her hand. She says, I can redo the kitchen. <laughs> so there's a silver lining to that story. Well, there was for her. <laughs> there was right. for her. But uh, nonetheless, it, it, but yeah, it, it's a pain in the neck. So I feel for the, I really feel for the folks in Florence. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and Houston is still recovering too. So this is, it's for the folks at Florence, uh, as in Houston, this is not a quick recovery. No. And we, uh, the one good thing that might come out of it is that you do see a lot of camaraderie. You do see a lot of people helping out in that kind of situation. Well, that in, in general aviation, I'll tell you what, general aviation, saved Rockport and Port Aransas. You know, people talk about Houston, but they really forget that Rockport and Port Aransas, those coastal towns that were actually south and west of Houston are the ones that took the brunt of the storm. Yeah, GA had a lot of recovery efforts and a lot of of relief efforts down there, too. Absolutely. From all over. Dallas was a staging area. Um, The Austin area was a staging area. Uh, once they could get into airports on the west side, uh, both uh, West Houston and uh, Houston Executive became staging areas and and taking water and things like that. That's one thing that GA can really that does really really well. Definitely, it definitely goes to show you how important GA is in times of emergency and times of emergency relief like that. Yeah, and we're getting things from one place to the next and helping folks out and helping them re- resettle and relocate. And yeah. uh, just keep it again. Yeah, also, keep emergency responders. That's you know, right. And, and to bring it back around to flying clubs, and I, not yeah. to interrupt you, but to bring it back around to flying sure. clubs, I can tell you that several of the flying clubs that, that AOPA helped get established in the state of Texas were key to um, the, re- the emergency response, uh, not only to, to Harvey. Yeah, but but Hurricane to, Maria and Irma to, too, sure. all, all of those plus plus some of the really bad stuff that's happened in New Orleans and right. Baton Rouge over the last several years when I-10 was closed. Uh, general aviation was a lifeline oh, of right. fresh water and things like that. Good point. Getting them into Louisiana. So yeah, good point. flying clubs can do a lot of good, um, and and it becomes a a big 
uh, social kind of a let's go let's go help give us a, give pilots a reason to do something and they're out there flying absolutely a hundred dollar hamburger or let's go save a town i'd say i'd say <laughs> let's save it well look pat that's about all the time we have right now i want to thank you again for coming over here to hangar talk sure. you got some uh you got some other responsibilities today <laughs> don't want to keep you too late uh, we sure appreciate you telling us a little bit about flying clubs a little bit about tow plane flying yeah. glider flying and uh, we didn't even mention some of the books that you've helped write, but we'll, we'll maybe we'll maybe do that with a with a part two at some point in the future. All right, David. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks, Pat. All right, my pleasure. Well, that was fascinating to listen to Pat Brown and, and some great ways to save money, including uh, flying clubs or learn how to do some sailplane flying. Um, and we are hopeful that everything will get back to normal with this aircraft. And, uh, you know, in, in almost a year after the storm, uh, Harvey hit there. Pat is such a nice guy. It's always a treat to see him whenever he stops by the AOPA headquarters. That's right. And they were up here. I should have led off the show with the fact that they were up here. And the ambassadors for all of our regions were up here to do a little get together and learn a little bit more about how to do their jobs and how to bring it to you folks, our podcast listeners. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. Thank you very much, Jill, for guest hosting today. Oh, happy to be here. So that's it for Hangar Talk. Our editor is Austin Hansen, and I'm David Tulis. Don't forget you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk. And we're on iTunes and at the Sporties Takeoff app. That's it for Hangar Talk. See y'all later. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.